This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. My guest for this hour is Jeremy Kohler. He's a St. Louis-based reporter covering issues in Missouri and the Midwest. He came to the ProPublica outlet, which y'all know by now is one of my favorite sources to read for information. Uh, He came to ProPublica in January of 2021 from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, where he worked for more than 20 years. This is someone who is familiar with this community. He previously worked as a reporter for the Gloucester County Times, Trentonian, and Courier Post newspapers in New Jersey. Uh, He also has uh, served as an adjunct journalism instructor at Washington State, excuse me, at Washington University since 2003. Uh, Mr. Kohler, it's a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks so much for having me on. I I have to be honest with you. My audience knows I love ProPublica. I love the articles, the in-depth reporting, and I love how angry some of the reporting also happens to make me. And your story uh, that looks at the private policing phenomenon that is currently taking place in St. Louis was one such story. Uh, Just for the audience who has not yet had a chance to read the article, can you talk with us about what is happening between public policing and private police forces in the St. Louis community? Sure. Uh, well, in St. Louis, uh, the St. Louis Police Department, the, the, you know, the public police department that taxpayers fund with their tax money, um, has retreated from community policing through the years to the extent that um, in, in many, really across the city, um, you don't really see the prototypical beat cop anymore. You don't see uh, patrols anymore, or just officers just sort of being present. And um, that's most acutely felt in the areas of the city that have the highest rates of violent crime. Uh, St. Louis is just, has just got a different level of crime than other cities. Um, you know, I, I draw attention to, in the story to just really the northern sixth of the, of the city, um, has as many murders as the, uh, in, in 2020 as the entire city of Minneapolis or Seattle. Wow. Um, so, you know, there, there are um, some areas of the city that are really struggling. Um, and so, um, uh, but so with the, with the public police department um, just not putting as many officers on the street as the, the local leaders demand, some of the neighborhoods in the city have taken it upon themselves to create taxing districts and hire more officers to put on the street. And um, of course, this is happening in across the central corridor of the city, which is uh, quite prosperous. Um, and uh, and so you have a real imbalance in the city as to where the cops are. The cops are chock-a-block in some of these neighborhoods where they have you know thriving business districts, um, but in the areas of the city that have the most crime, they're absent. So let's talk about these areas that have the most crime, just because I, I like to I want to make sure we have a, a fuller understanding as to what types of communities we're talking about. Are these communities that are are sort of identifiable by the exorbitant crime rates? Are we seeing other forms of economic distress in these communities? Can you give us some sense of flavor as to what the quality of life is like beyond the crime statistics? Uh, what is the overall quality of life like for people living in communities that have this rampant crime rate? Uh, because I think that will help us understand and unpack a bit more about what's happening. 
Yeah, this this is a, a community that's in crisis and has been in crisis for decades. Um, St. Louis at one time in the 50s had a population of almost 900,000 and, and now it's below 300,000. So this is an extremely wow. deep, deep populated area um, where people are, you know, where people are have been moving from uh, for years. Um, and so, um, you know, there are you know, there are rows, entire blocks where the, practically every house is caved in or has just is already been removed. Um, and so um, times are tough here. And, you know, the, uh, you know, if you're familiar with St. Louis, um, you know about what's known as the Del Mar Divide. Uh, Del Mar is an east-west uh, street that basically bisects the city. And north of uh, Del Mar, um, almost all the residents are black more than half the residents south of del mar are white and home values south of del mar are about seven times higher than those to the north so there is an extreme uh it's just it's really an extreme difference between the quality of life and on one area of the city and 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 the other area of the city so it sounds like we have a city that sort of replicates the inequities that we've seen throughout the country. And when you're talking about going from 900,000 to, to a third of that, 300,000, that depopulation, that is astronomical. And, and that really does help, I think, to paint a picture as to the challenges that some of these communities are facing. Uh, you'd mentioned that we're not seeing enough, we're not seeing those beat cops, those traditional beat cops on the street, uh, it, even in these high crime areas the way we had in the past. Do we, do we have an understanding from the local police as to what's driving their allocation of policing resources and, and how they're determining which communities are going to get the support that they do have available? I do not have a very clear answer for that. Um, if you ask the police, they'll tell you that they are beset by manpower issues, uh, morale problems, um, that their manpower is the lowest it's ever been, or at least in, in the last hundred years. Um, and those things are true to an extent. There, there are there are about 200 cops down from where they were about 10 years ago, but they still have 1,100 police officers in the city, and it's in for a city of 290,000 residents, um, that is actually one of the highest uh, ratios of officers per capita in the country. Um, huh. So there are plenty of cops in the city of St. Louis, um, and it's really a question of of what they're doing. Um, uh, Center for Policing Equity came in. Um, this is a nonprofit group that studies police departments and tries to in, improve performance. Uh, came in in 2021 and, 20 and uh, evaluated the staffing of the police department, and um, they they looked at every call for service, every 911 call, or every call that a police officer might make uh, on his on his or her own. Um, such as, uh, um, you know, if approaching a pedestrian or if they witness a crime in progress. Um, and uh, Center for Police, Policing Equity found that there were only 380 officers who were available to take calls for service. So that means that there are over 700 officers huh. in the police department who do not take respond to calls for service, who are not generally out on the street in a, in a visible way. That seems really interesting to me, considering some of the discrepancies that you just pointed out, that it feels like a good two thirds, just about give or take a few math is not my thing uh, yet, uh, are should be available for dispatch, but are not. And, and yet at the same time, uh, Jeremy Kohler, we are also seeing the rise in what you describe in your article as private 
police forces. So you, you've talked with us about what is happening for the police who are on the public payroll, but there is this other side of this story uh, where we're looking at private policing services. Can you tease out for the audience what you mean when you talk about this phenomenon in your articles? Yeah, um, there, there is uh, one, one company in particular called The City's Finest, and they have a headquarters uh, off a busy uh, corridor, Manchester Avenue in the city. Uh, and the building just has a, a sign outside that says police. Uh, they have cars parked outside that say police, the city's finest. Uh, the cars have uh, the emblem or the, the St. Louis police badge as part of the logo on the car. Um, so it, any reasonable person looking at one of these cars or this building believes it's the police. it's a police headquarters and that these are police quarters, but it's a private company. Uh, and they actually employ almost one-fifth of the police department in a part-time capacity, uh, including almost half of the senior command staff. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa, wait, yeah. hold on. <laughs> wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. Jeremy, you just told me that at any given moment, almost two-thirds of the public paid police department is not available uh, to respond to calls, and yet a fifth of said department is actually moonlighting as private police for an outfit that cosplays as real police that am, am i hearing you correctly yeah you you heard that correctly yes uh i'm not sure i would use the word cosplays because when they are working for this private company they are actually they, they are police officers they they can use all of their uh, authority as police officers they can arrest people they can pull over cars they can investigate crimes um and so there's really not if you saw one of them on the street you probably wouldn't know if they were working for the city uh, or for the city's finest at that time. Um, now, and oh, go, go ahead, ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, and so um, the neighborhoods uh, like, especially like the central West end, which is the city's most populous neighborhood and a very uh, uh, prosperous one and downtown, which is the central business district. And then kind of stretched across the city's central corridor between those between those two neighborhoods, um, you you see uh, those neighborhoods are hiring um, officers from the city's finest, uh, and they patrol in these cars. They they're on ATVs and they're on bikes and they're on foot. Um, and you, if you were uh, out to eat there, or if you were you know if you live there, uh, you you'd have to you'd have to, I mean, there would be no way for you to know if they were working for the private company or for the police department. One of the things that, that was fascinating to me as I'm putting on my lawyer hat, what is my legal obligation as a, as a resident in this community to listen to these, these police who are in the private employee, maybe they're actually on the police payroll, but at this, let's say I'm on the street. I see one of the city's finest, which is interesting to me. I see one of the city's finest on a bike. They pull me over. They look like a police officer uh, who was employed by the state. They sound like it. They've got the apparatus, the badge, the uniform. If they are not at that time working for the actual police department, but are instead working in their private capacity, am I as a resident, legally obligated to defer to them in the same way that I would be if they were performing the, the police function as paid for by the state? Yeah, you are. Uh, I'm, I'm not a oh, lawyer. Snap. You are, but, <laughs> but you are, uh, even if a police officer wasn't working at all and they identified themselves as a police officer um, and you had no reason to 
suspect that they weren't. I, you know, that you would have to stop um, and, and, and obey their command. So, yes. So even though they're in private capacity right now, they're, they, they could just as if they were moonlighting at a bar, if they're they're working the bar, they're they're serving up great drinks uh, or they're moonlighting as a telemarketer. They're they're working the phone, selling coffee uh, or whatever it is you sell as a telemarketer. It's what I had to sell in college when I was a telemarketer. They're moonlighting <laughs> and. I have to, as they're moonlighting in this position, I have to give them the same legal deference and I'm obligated to relate to them as if they were actually on the police payroll at that given time. I just want to make sure that's clear because that is mind boggling to me. Yes, you do. And in St. Louis, you probably wouldn't know if they were working for the city or for the company at that time because they're they're wearing their uniform and they're driving a car that says police. So who is paying for these folks? Can I come in and just set up a police community, a, a private police force? Who is able to afford? I'm imagining the people who live north of the Del Mar Divide are probably not some of the folks who are making these hiring decisions. Who is able to afford private police forces in this city? Well, small areas of the city uh, come together and create a taxing district. And so you have some of these districts, maybe maybe just a few blocks and some of them may be stretched over a whole area of the city, but they tax themselves uh, an extra tax, either a property tax or a sales tax um, to fund it. And so it goes into a fund and then um, they use that money for a variety of different things, sometimes for lighting, sometimes for uh, security cameras and office, often for supplemental police patrols. Okay, so now you just (laughs) we may have to have you come back because now taxing districts is my new point of fascination. So you need to tell me and in this and audience, I need you to listen to this because there are other ways that one, I think, could use a taxing district. You mean to tell me this is a group of of loosely organized citizens or residents who have decided they want to pay for an additional service that the city that they pay taxes to cannot provide. So they themselves pool their resources, y'all. Today is Ujamaa Day, okay? Cooperative economics and the quans of cosmology. So these people come together, they pool their resources, charge themselves an extra tax so that they can provide the policing services that they feel are going to be more responsive to their needs. Is this something that has, a, is there a racial component to this? Are there some groups that because of the geography, their zip code, how they are housed and historical patterns of housing segregation, are we seeing any racial slants to who is able to access these private services versus those who are not? Just the sheer geography of it shows that there is. Um, these things are happening south of Del Mar, where, like I said, mm. uh, half of the, re- you know, an area of the city where more than half of the residents are white. Um, so, uh, and and there are, no- there's none of this activity in the area of the city where, where most of the residents are, are black. Wow. So um, I know that if the police beat me up, um, or if they kill me or they do something terrible to me, I, there is some recourse that I have. I can file a 1983 action, uh, a civil complaint against them. Usually those end in settlements of some sort, uh, when the police officer is not actually found liable on the criminal side of the house. 
if I am accosted by a, an officer while they are in their private employee and I have a need to file a complaint, am I still going to be able to access the 1983 uh, federal statute that gives me protection from police brutality when they're paid by the state? Am I able to access the same apparatus for holding police accountable if the police officer I want to hold accountable is in you know, the city's finest private policing company? Do we have any information about that? Well, if you filed a complaint with Internal Affairs first, Internal Affairs, uh, as far as I could tell, would treat this the same way that they would treat a complaint against an on-duty officer. Um, now, the activities of what Internal Affairs does, uh, I don't have a great window. A lot of these records are closed. Um, and so, uh, you know, the 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 results of these investigations, I don't I don't really have a good idea of, of what happens. Um, in terms of the, the legal differences of public versus private police officers, um, a, a, a police officer working for a private look, a private security company does not enjoy qualified immunity in the courts. Um, and so um, I think actually a, a police officer would be more vulnerable working for uh, a private security company as an individual because they would not have the the shield of the police department protecting them in court um, through through the doctrine of qualified immunity. So, um, however, um, you know, as far as 1983 is concerned, um, you know, a uh, I think a I think that pertains to a, a, uh, uh, the the government really. So, um, I'm not sure. Um, that a private security company would be able to, I, I think you actually might be more vulnerable working as a police officer for the police department than a private security company under, under 1983. So I think that, I think there's, I think it really depends on what the complaint is. Wow. So, because, for, you know, one of the things that I'm always curious about here in New York city, we have some communities that have basically done something very similar uh, where they have their own independent policing force. And I don't know, you know, they actually do get some city council funds for this. So theirs is not wholly funded within from within their own private spaces, but uh, you know, they have their own number. I am not a part of this religious community, so I don't get the number. <laughs> so if I need help, I still have to call 911. Um, but this, you know, the idea of citizens, residents of the country, or of a municipality being able to use uh, their own resources to provide for their needs. I think that in and of itself could be a phenomenal thing. But as a black woman who <laughs> listens to stories about police brutality gone wrong, the idea of private police forces who are by geography alone, even before we get to race, who are ge geographically positioned in such a way that they are protecting white, whiter communities than they are uh, communities of color. That gives me a lot of pause. I don't know. Have you are you familiar? with Octavia Octavia Butler? I'm not. Okay, so she's a writer of she may she rest in peace. Um died a few years ago, a science fiction writer, absolutely phenomenal. And she has this series called Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talent, and she kind of it's, it's sort of a futuristic uh tale. It takes place in 2024. She wrote it in the 90s. Um and they, they have like a president Donald Connor uh who's very make America great again. It's very eerie in sort of how prescient it was and how she was able to foretell some things. But one of the things that sort of sits as a backdrop in these stories is this idea that there has been such a breakdown and the national government's ability in the state's government's ability to provide for its people that if you can't afford to pay the fire department when they come to put out the fire in your house, they're not going to turn on the water. If you cannot afford to pay the police officer 
when they get to your house to investigate who robbed you, they're not going to conduct an investigation. This feels to me sort of eerily close to what Octavia Butler was envisioning all those many years ago. And I wonder if you as a reporter have had a chance to see sort of a, is there a dystopian concern here? Am I sort of just pulling, you know, my love for science fiction into a space where it doesn't actually sit? What what concerns does this raise in terms of how policing is already uh, effectuated in St. Louis? How should we be concerned about this particular phenomenon, particularly because it seems as though we're reifying some of those racial uh, stratification, some of those racial hierarchies in that it is the white wealthier residents who are able to protect themselves in this way largely against the boogeyman who I suspect they all think may live north of that Del Mar divide. Well, um, one one example of what you're talking about is a central theme in my story, and that is that the officers who are working for the private company are actually sometimes working for private rewards. Um, they, they, they might get an email from the security company that they're working for that says $1,000 to whoever finds the car wanted in this burglary, $250 to whoever catches this guy. And so when I talk to private uh, security experts, uh, policing experts, uh, this is something that is so far beyond the pale in modern policing that they hadn't seen anything like this in over 100 years. This was, wow. this was out of the Wild West. And um, and so uh, when you when you know, you, you brought up the term dystopian, I mean, I think these are practices that are really, really uh, far from the 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 ethics and and the goals of of modern policing what was happening a hundred years ago where this was this was the this was the norm what, what did, Bount- did cops working as bounty hunters working for wow. um you know working for people with the means to post rewards for uh for you know to have uh to bring someone to justice quote unquote Now, if I'm getting one of these private rewards, I I feel as though, you know, if I'm an officer and I get an email that says there's a thousand dollars for whoever finds this, you know, reportedly stolen what, you know, widget or whatever, that to me incentivizes a a very aggressive form of policing, a very aggressive form of searching for this item. I want that reward. And it would seem to me that incentivizing aggressive policing is not really where, you know, at least not where I want us to go as a nation. I think the numbers of protests that we've seen in response to police brutality would indicate that incentivizing aggressive policing is not necessarily going to end up well. Um, The folks that you spoke with who said this is something they hadn't seen in over 100 years, do we have an indication as to where the logical conclusion of these sorts of practices may be? I, I presume it's not just going to be St. Louis that's incorporating this. We've seen them in other places. You report on uh, other municipalities that are, are sort of teasing around the edges of this similar phenomenon. You know, not to ask you to be a prophet or anything, but if we were to follow the logical conclusion of this story, where does pra- where do practices like these lead us as a society when this is the way policing powers are being differentiated and dispersed throughout communities. It's hard to it's hard to extrapolate this out to where you know the the extreme of where it could go. Um, I think St. Louis is already uh, in that range. You talked about other cities. There are other cities where uh, off-duty cops can work for neighborhoods patrolling public places, but in those cities that they are generally still working for the police department. Um, or, and there are also cities where 
off-duty cops can work for private security companies, uh, like in Chicago, but they're not wearing their police uniforms and representing themselves as police officers and using all of their police authority to arrest people and and stop cars and things like that. Um, and so I think uh, I think you've already seen sort of an extreme kind of uh, you know uh, uh, unravel in St. Louis um, com- compared to the rest uh, of the country. How far that could go, I I, I really don't know. <laughs> I, I I I I don't have enough information just to to say we have this concept in the black community of of reading people or reading energy and being able to to percept something perceive some things my perception powers tell me this is going to hell in a handbasket this is very disconcerting for me and and as a mom as somebody who is constantly you know very concerned every time my children walk out the door, particularly my son, uh, my daughter, the same. Uh, The idea that we might be living in a community where uh, police officers are incentivized uh, with private bounty fees, where we have this blending of public private policing and uh, the inability to really separate where my obligation to comply starts and ends depending on uh, which side of that public private line they're on the concerns that this raises about what I can do in terms of seeking recourse. If a a public uh, police officer is on the private payroll, when they beat me up, uh, these are concerns that really uh, reign supreme in my mind. And when I read the article, I felt like I was clutching every pearl so hard that my my metaphorical necklace of pearls just completely snapped uh, because this (laughs) is this. And and then I've got Octavia Butler whispering in my ear. I told Told you this was coming. I said it in the 90s. Uh, so this is really something that I think we need to be paying way more attention to, uh, particularly because we are seeing uh, these sorts of, and I'm going to put this word in air quotes, these sorts of quote unquote solutions being promulgated at the same time that communities of color uh, and communities that have seen what can happen when when policing goes wrong are demanding investment in the resources that are going to ameliorate the quality of life concerns that create crime and that foster violence in communities. This is a fascinating situation we find ourselves in in this country. And I'm so glad that you and your work exists uh, and allows us to, to really have a deep dive into what's happening here. Uh, I'm so grateful for you being with us today. How can people follow you? This is not the only story you've been writing on these these topics. You have you and all the ProPublica folks. I love you guys. How can people connect with you and and find out more about what's happening there and and hopefully use this information to guide how policy rolls out in their own local municipalities? Yeah, just just read Um, ProPublica.org. I'm part of the Midwest team. Um, which is based in Chicago. I'm the only reporter in St. Louis on that team. Wow. Um, and we've been rolling out stories all year. As a matter of fact, one of my teammates has the lead story on ProPublica right now. Um, and so we we publish uh, at least one or two stories per day. Um, we tend to partner with, uh, with other media. For example, my story was co-published with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Mm. Uh, my, my colleague, Vernal Col- uh, Coleman, um, has just pu- published a story with WTTW in Chicago, the PBS station. And so um, so there are a lot of places to find our stories, but ProPublica.org is the best. It really is. And you guys are doing amazing work. Thank you so much for being here. You, you've given us lots to think about in a very Octavia Butler sense of the world. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Lori. 